We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 32 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, April 5th, 2021, the day after Easter, the day after the conclusion of Passover, whichever one you celebrated, if you celebrated either. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you stuffed your face appropriately. I am Catholic. I am a goyim, as my Jewish brothers and sisters would say. So yes, I had a nice Easter. And yes, it felt like spring on Sunday in the D.C. area. We will crown a national champion in college basketball tonight, the battle that we probably should have expected all along. But of course, 
You never know with these NCAA tournaments. They are unpredictable, as you may have heard. But we got the two best teams in the nation going head-to-head on Monday night. Gonzaga, Baylor, Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. A 9-20 tip. Yes, if you are an early morning warrior like myself and care about this game, expect a late night on Monday night. But what a classic for the Zags in that win over UCLA in the Final Four on Saturday night. One of the greatest games in college basketball history. And honestly, if you want to call it the best game in college basketball history, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you. Overtime game in the Final Four, decided on a last-second desperation three. It's hard to top that, man. I mean, that right there says it all. The standard by which college basketball games tend to be judged is the Duke-Kentucky game in 92, right? The Kristen Leitner game. But, you know, you think about that. I mean, yes, that was an all-time classic. I'm not here to tell you otherwise. But while that, too, was an overtime game, that was not a Final Four game. That was an Elite Eight game. And Leitner's game-winning shot was a two, not a three. So just from that standpoint, Gonzaga-UCLA Saturday night topped Duke-Kentucky in 92. Now, you know, there are other things you can bring up about Duke-Kentucky, including each team scoring over 100 points, but I think it's worth bringing this stuff up. The absurdity of Gonzaga-UCLA really cannot be overstated. The game was tied for 6 minutes 23 seconds over the course of the 45 minutes. The game included 19 lead changes. The largest lead for either team in the game, a mere 7 points. At no point did either team have more than six unanswered points, and the game was played with either a one-score deficit or a two-score deficit. How about this? For 43 minutes, 51 seconds of the 45 minutes in the game. I mean, that that is nuts in terms of how tight that game ended up being. So we can only hope Gonzaga Baylor on Monday night is in the same zip code as Gonzaga UCLA was on Saturday night. Well, speaking of college basketball, the Turge. How about the Turge? Uh, He's being extended, and it's not just that. Big weekend news for Maryland basketball. Contract extension coming for Mark Turgeon, and the program landed two major transfers, including the big man from the Hoyas, Kudus Wahab, transferring from Georgetown to Maryland. How about that betrayal of Hoyas Nation? Uh, We're going to be getting into that on this installment of the podcast, all of the Maryland news over the last few days, and we'll talk about all of that with our special guest, Jeff Ehrman, the founder and publisher of InsideMDSports.com. Got lots for you on the Washington football team, the latest in the Brandon Sheriff situation. If you were like me and pessimistic about the team getting a long-term deal with him this offseason, you now have even more reason to be pessimistic. And has the Ron Rivera godfather like baptism of fire continued with maybe his biggest ouster yet, that of Dr. Robin West and Denova. Yes, the doctor who was at the helm of the Alex Smith 17 surgery saga, Inova, massive corporate sponsor of the Washington football team for years. Both are on the outs with the Washington football team. What is behind this? What's causing all this? I'm going to spend some time on that in a bit. We do believe, finally, mercifully, that the Nationals will be having themselves a season. Yes, I know. Miracles do happen, apparently. The Nats will have a 2021 season announcement on Sunday night from MLB. That Tuesday 
is when the Nats will be beginning their season. The Atlanta Braves will be at Nationals Park. It has been a confusing and tedious last few days with the Nats. I'll be getting into that. Uh, very good weekends for the Capitals. And yes, Orioles. How about the O's pulling off the three-game sweep at the Boston Red Sox? Another loss for our Wizards. We'll do all that as this installment of the Al Goldie podcast progresses as well. So on Friday's installment of the podcast, I asked the question off Anthony Fauci coming on the Nats Chat podcast with Mark Zuckerman and me of whether Fauci, who's a big Nationals fan, is the most famous current fan of a D.C. sports team. You know, is Fauci the most famous fan of a D.C. team that we currently have? Is there a celebrity fan of one of our teams more famous right now than Anthony Fauci? You know, you like to think about the most famous fans of, say, the Washington football team. You have Kevin Durant. You have Dale Earnhardt Jr. You have Matthew McConaughey. You, You got plenty more. But would you say that any of those people, especially right now, are more famous than Fauci. And I got a lot of feedback to this. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Frank in Ashburn emailed me. Uh, I also got a tweet from Jim Wynn. Each guy essentially saying the same thing. Wolf Blitzer is a big Wizards fan. Yes, that is true. I would not, though, put old Wolfie ahead of Fauci. Certainly not right now. I uh, got this tweet from Carrie. Uh, she said, famous Caps fans, Pat Sajak. He goes to games a lot, sometimes his promo stuff with the Caps. And she said, the OG Wonder Woman, Linda Carter. Correct on both counts. Good pulls by Kerry. But I would not put Sajak or Linda uh, ahead of Fauci right now. I don't think we can top Fauci at the moment in terms of like the most famous DC sports fans. So, you know, put aside whatever you think about him and what he's done, you know. But I'm just saying in terms of like notoriety right now, I don't think you're topping Fauci in terms of DC sports fans. But if you have one who you think is bigger, a contender to knock the doctor off the throne, hit me up again, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com or at Al Galdi on Twitter. All right, lots of ground to cover, as is usually the case on a Monday installment of this podcast. We're going to begin with our football team and the latest when it comes to, yes, the guard. And the other one's a guard. So on Friday's installment of this podcast, we went through in depth all that Ron Rivera had to say in his Zoom press conference on Thursday. And among the many topics addressed by Ron was the latest in the Brandon Sheriff situation. Washington obviously having a franchise tag sheriff for a second consecutive offseason back on March 8th. He on March 12th signed the one year $18 million non-exclusive franchise tag tender. Where do things stand contractually right now with Brandon Sheriff? And Ron's answer to that question did not give you much reason for optimism. Here was what Ron had to say again this past Thursday. Um, well, that situation hasn't changed. We, we've got Brandon signed right now. Uh, we'll see how things go as we go forward. Um, we are most certainly interested. Uh, but again, we have to wait and see what happens. We haven't talked since he signed. Yeah, so it wasn't, yeah, he signed the tender, but golly gee, we're plowing forward and we're getting close to signing this guy to a long-term contract. It was, he signed the tender, he got the $18 million guaranteed, and we haven't spoken since. We haven't talked since he signed. Yeah, so, so Ron says that on Thursday, and I don't know about you, but my immediate reaction was, hmm, okay, that doesn't sound ultra-promising. To that end, we got the following on Friday. So Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN in an installment of his John Keim Report podcast that dropped on Friday 
said that Sheriff has, quote, turned down multiple offers, some of which would have made him the highest paid guard in the league, end quote. Now, Kime admitted that he does not know the structures of those contract offers from Washington, but bottom line is that per Kime, Brendan has turned down not an offer, but multiple offers, some of which would have made him the highest paid guard in the league. This is right in line with what I know I thought would end up being the case, and I know a lot of you thought would end up being the case. The second that Washington slapped Sheriff with a franchise tag for a second consecutive offseason, Washington raised Sheriff's leverage in this entire situation, and Washington made signing Sheriff to a long-term contract this offseason even less likely. This is why I have wanted no part of Brandon Sheriff being back with Washington under the terms of a second consecutive franchise tag. Now, as I've said, if you're going to tag him and then get a long-term deal done, great. But once you tag him, that's lessening the likelihood of getting a long-term deal done. You tagged him last offseason. He played 2020 under the terms of a $15 million non-exclusive franchise tag tender. You tag him again this offseason. He signed the tender just a few days later because why wait? It's $18 million guaranteed and you are now poised to pay him $33 million over the last two seasons. All that money guaranteed. What's his incentive for doing a long-term deal now this offseason? Why not just take it to next offseason and either do a long-term deal with Washington then of having gotten $33 million guaranteed over the previous two years, or just waltz into unrestricted free agency and let the bidding war begin. When you franchise tag someone in back-to-back years, and we all learn this with the Kirk Cousins cha-cha-cha, you increase the leverage of the player. The Kirk thing forever altered how we view the franchise tag, and how if a player believes in himself, he can maximize every penny possible by doing a year-to-year scenario for at least a little while. Washington franchise tagging Sheriff for a second straight year disincentivized him from agreeing on a long-term deal and has increased the likelihood of Sheriff just walking away via unrestricted free agency because if you're not going to do a long-term deal this offseason, then you're going to go into this 2021 season with it being your contract year. And with it being your contract year, if you go into unrestricted free agency, that automatically increases the likelihood of you leaving because once a guy hits the open market, it's always more likely that the guy ends up leaving you. This is exactly what we all anticipated. And what Ron Rivera said on Thursday, what Khan reported on Friday, backs all that up. Now, are you like guaranteed that Sheriff won't agree on a long-term deal? No, but it ain't trending well, okay? I mean, when Ron on Thursday says, we haven't talked since he signed the tender, understand, Brandon Sheriff signed that one-year franchise tag tender on March 12th, okay? Here we are. This is Monday, April 5th. Uh, geez, it's been almost a full month now, okay? Now, maybe they talked over the weekend. Again, Ron said that on Thursday, but you get the idea here. It's not like Sheriff signed the, t- the one-year franchise tag tender and then the two sides kept talking. It's Brandon Sheriff signed the one-year franchise tag tender and then probably started doing cartwheels down Loudoun County Parkway, okay? One year, $18 million, all of it's guaranteed. $18 million guaranteed for a guard. And the other one's a guard. Yes, Jay, a guard. Like, that is huge money, and Sheriff has got it coming to him regardless of what happens with him in the 2021 season. We all saw this coming, like, 10 miles away, and it's playing out at least so far exactly as we anticipated. Now, of course, there is another potential scenario here 
with Washington having tag sheriff again, and that is you tag him and you trade him. I have never gotten the sense that Washington is interested in trading away Brandon Sheriff. I do think Washington should be interested in trading away Brandon Sheriff because you're right now staring at losing a highly coveted asset for nothing more than a third round compensatory pick next offseason. And even that's not a guarantee because comp picks have to do with not just who you lose, but who you gain. So if Washington signs someone to a big money free agent contract next offseason, even if Sheriff leaves, that signing by Washington is going to cancel out Sheriff leaving. And so you're not going to get that third round compensatory pick. So literally, you could get zero for Brandon Sheriff. He could leave you via free agency after this upcoming season and you get zero. This is not what we call ideal asset management, okay? This is not what we call maximizing the asset, losing a guy like Sheriff. Whatever you think about him, whatever you think, whether he should be paid big money or not, it's like he is a very good player, right? He was first team all pro for this past season. Washington has deemed him worthy of back-to-back franchise tags and that you could end up losing him ultimately for nothing. Not the way to do this, okay? Not the way you want to go. And yet Washington right now is staring at that. Can Washington afford to pay Brandon the $18 million this coming season? Yes, but that's not the point. You know, you, you want to be in the practice of good player personnel. And this is not good player personnel, the way this sheriff thing has been handled and the way the sheriff thing is trending. I like so much of what the Washington football team has done so far this offseason. This is like the one thing I don't like and I don't get. And it's interesting to me with this situation specifically, because you may recall this, Ron Rivera in his previous Zoom press conference, the one that he did right before free agency started, made it a point to say it was his decision and his decision alone to franchise tag Brandon Sheriff for a second straight offseason. And when Ron said that, it did make you wonder, was there division within the Washington football team front office about what to do here with Brandon? I would not be surprised if there was. I would not be surprised if there were people inside Washington's front office who did not want to tag Brandon Sheriff again. You know, and who were those people? We do not know. But we do know, right? The Washington football team's front office now has a whole lot of people, right? There are a lot of experienced minds in that front office. So whether it was Marty Herney, the executive vice president of football slash player personnel, or Martin Mayhew, the general manager, or Chris Polian, the director of pro personnel, or Eric Stokes, the senior director of player personnel, or Rob Rogers, who is Washington's senior vice president of football administration and their cap guy, and also a big analytics guy, I would not be surprised at all if one or more of those people said to Ron, Ron, Bubala, what are we doing here? Franchise tagging Sheriff Agard for a second straight year, guaranteeing him $18 million and automatically increasing the likelihood of not getting a long-term deal done this offseason and him leaving us via unrestricted free agency next offseason. So this is, like I said, the one stain, I think, so far on the Washington football team's front office. And if you were hoping for some good news, if you were hoping like, okay, yeah, they tagged them, but you know what? They're they're, they're coming together. You know, golly gee, they're going to get the long-term contract done. There's still time, all right? You got till July 15th to get the long-term contract done. But at least for now, these signs are not very positive.
Something else that hasn't been positive, commissions to real estate agents. Outrageous commissions have been a real issue for so many of us when it comes to selling homes over the years. How much of what you're about to get for your home are you going to have to give to the person selling your home? That's never sat right with a big supporter of this podcast, a master real estate agent, John Granlund. And how about what John G is doing about this? He's selling homes for free. That's right, for free. John G with Real Broker will sell your home for free. And he's not going to skimp on any of the services here. There's no catch with this. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to make sure you're not hunting for buyers for months on end. And when John finds you an offer that you find acceptable, that which you would normally pay your listing agent stays in your pocket. Again, zero commission. And then John helps you find the home of your dreams and you're good to go. Expansive services, high level services at the lowest commission possible, zero. The thing that has turned so many of us off to selling homes over the years, the commission to the real estate agent, that's going bye-bye thanks to John Granlund. To find out more about this program, to find your home's value, visit this website, johngsellsforfree.com. The website says it all, johngsellsforfree.com. This is groundbreaking what John Granlund is doing. You can call John as well, 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. Tell him, I want what I heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. Zero commission. John Granlund, selling homes for free. Tell him Al Galdi sent you and start packing. So if you are a regular listener to the Al Galdi podcast, you know one of the themes I've been harping on over the last few weeks is the Ron Rivera godfather-like baptism of fire that's been going on. Ron ousting those he no longer wants as a part of the Washington football team. Ron truly putting his stamp on the organization as the head coach in the coach-centric approach. Ron is the Don of the Washington football team. Ron is the head of the family that is the Washington football team. And Ron, now that he's been here for more than a year, is putting his true imprint on how this organization is being set up. To that end, how about what was announced on Friday? And this may have nothing to do with the ongoing Ron baptism of fire, but you're being awfully naive if you just automatically believe that this has nothing to do with the ongoing Ron Rivera baptism of fire. Innova is a nonprofit health system based in Falls Church, Virginia. Innova on Friday announced that Innova has, quote, made the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team, end quote. This is very significant. Washington hired Dr. Robin West, the medical director of Innova Sports Medicine, as the team's director of sports medicine in June 2016. You likely have heard that name, Dr. Robin West, over especially the last few years. It was Dr. Robin West who was the lead physician and surgeon for Alex Smith over his 17 surgeries on his right leg. And it has been Innova that has been a major sponsor for the Washington football team. Heck, the team's headquarters in Ashburn, Virginia, what used to be known as Redskins Park, that's now known as the Innova Sports Performance Center. And, you know, I know for some people it's like, hey, Galdi, all I care about is the football. I don't care about this other stuff. I hear you on that. 
But this other stuff has a lot to do with the football. That's why I always pay attention to this stuff because it's like, yeah, it may not have to do with who's starting at quarterback or, you know, who your nickel corner is. But this stuff matters a lot because it can tell you truly what's going on with the team. So Anova in this statement that came out on Friday said the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team was based on Anova having, quote, revisited its strategic priorities, end quote, and having, quote, become even more focused on advancing patient-centered care in the D.C. region. Hmm. Okay. So Anova, big time, big money corporate sponsor for the Washington football team, the prestige of the medical director of Anova Sports Medicine, having served as Washington's director of sports medicine since June of 2016, all of a sudden has decided we are revisiting our strategic priorities. We are now even more focused on advancing patient-centered care in the D.C. region. And it's not about that dopey football team anymore. Uh, Anova in the statement said that, quote, Dr. West and her team are grateful for the opportunity to have supported the team, the fans, and the community, end quote. Anova in the statement said that Anova's sponsorship as the official health system for the Washington football team would continue through the 2021 season. I did not hear or see if that will in fact be the last season for Anova as the official health system for the Washington football team. So before we go any further, I do want to say this. It is possible that Anova itself decided to end its partnership with the Washington football team. It doesn't have to necessarily be that the Washington football team decided to break up with Anova. It may well be that Anova decided to break up with the Washington football team. Who knows how all of this scandal has impacted something like Anova. I mean, Anova is not some rinky-dink operation. Anova doesn't have to be in bed with the Washington football team. You do have to wonder, right? Like the sexual harassment scandal, the ownership turmoil, to what extent has that stuff turned off an entity like Anova? Although I would say the sexual harassment scandal, the ownership turmoil, that stuff got going last summer. So if you were going to be that turned off by all that stuff, you would have put out a statement like the one Anova put out this past Friday last year, not now. Like now we are through the ownership turmoil, right? Dan Snyder has bought out the minority owners. Oh, by the way, that became official official on Friday. And when it comes to the sexual harassment scandal, I mean, people are going to interpret things in different ways. But right now, it certainly seems like that Beth Wilkinson investigation is not going to be revealing uh, anything that much more egregious than what we already knew again a year ago with all those Washington Post articles. So it would be a little uh, peculiar if, okay, last year you weren't turned off by all this scandal, but now this year, no, now, now we're upset. Now we're offended by being in bed with the Danny and the Washington football team. But yeah, if in fact this is coming from the team, if in fact this is coming from Ron Rivera, this really is a big deal. You know, this saga of the Washington football team and the training staff and or the medical staff has been going on for a while. And, and, and I should differentiate. The, the medical staff and the training staff are two different things. There is a difference between an NFL team's medical staff and training staff. The, the medical staff is comprised, right, of doctors. The training staff is comprised of trainers. There's certainly overlapping and hopefully communication and cohesion between the two staffs, but they are two different staffs. 
But this whole thing of Washington's training staff, Washington's medical staff, of course, this became a big deal during the Trent Williams holdout, right? When the Trent holdout became public in June 2019, that's when we first truly got going with all this medical staff and training staff stuff. Now, of course, the Trent situation very clearly, ultimately, was far more about money than about unhappiness with the team's training staff and or medical staff. But that did not mean that unhappiness had not existed. And to that point, Trent's unhappiness with Washington's training staff and or medical staff was echoed by others. Morgan Moses, after a minicamp practice on June 5th, 2019, seemed to validate Trent's concerns. Quote, obviously, it's about time somebody like that stands up. It's not just a situation here. It happens throughout the league to have one of our peers like Trent, a very valued guy on the field and off the field, to stand up like that. It means a lot to not just us as players, but to the NFL as well. Obviously, his scare is one that you never want to have, but at the end of the day, he's got to take care of himself, end quote. Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN had the following in a report on June 5th, 2019. There have been complaints by various Redskins players over the years regarding the medical staff, often focusing on the lack of communication during recovery periods, end quote. Another Washington football team insider, Lake Lewis of SportsJourney.com, tweeted the following on June 5th, 2019. To cut to the chase, the issue going on with Trent Williams and several other players I have spoken to over the past few years is the distrust with the team doctors and lack of communication. Perhaps Williams' status on the team gives him a platform to bring it to light. So it wasn't just like Trent saying this stuff. Others came out and said this. Morgan Moses went public with it, and you had various guys like Kyman Lewis reporting of player dissatisfaction, player unhappiness with Washington's medical staff slash training staff over the years. Additionally, right, and this has nothing to do with what anybody said. This is stuff we observed with our own eyes and ears. There has been a lot in the way of post-surgery infection for Washington players in recent years. I mean, the most famous instance of this, of course, is Alex Smith. 17 freaking surgeries on his right leg due to infection and sepsis of the broken right fibula and tibia that he suffered in that loss to the Houston Texans at FedEx Field in November 2018. But remember, the post-surgery infection scenario, not just exclusive to Alex. Colt McCoy underwent three additional procedures on his right leg after an initial procedure for his own fractured right fibula that he suffered in a Washington loss at the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday Night Football in December 2018, right? Two weeks after Alex's broken right fibula and tibia, Colt suffered a fractured right fibula. Now, Jay Gruden, March of 2019, at the NFL's annual league meeting, did reveal that Colt essentially had been rushed back from his injury. Quote, what happened was when he had the injury, we were aggressive trying to get him back on the field so fast, we didn't give it time enough to heal the right way. So they went back in and did a small procedure to make sure that thing is on track to be full strength by the season, end quote. Jay, obviously, they are using the pronoun we, so that would seem to indicate that the team was culpable to at least some extent in rushing Colt back and generating the setbacks. Now, when we say the team was culpable to an extent, is that just the coaching staff? Is that the coaching staff in the front office? Is that the coaching staff, the front office, and the medical staff, and or training staff? There was a piece by Kareem Copeland of the Washington Post in December 2018. That piece revealed that Darius Geis, who, remember, suffered a season-ending torn left ACL in Washington's first preseason game 
in 2018, a loss at the New England Patriots, that Geis had developed an infection after the surgery that lasted two months and required three additional procedures. So Alex Smith, post-surgery infection. Colt McCoy, post-surgery infection. Darius Geis, post-surgery infection. Is any of this the fault of the medical staff, i.e., is any of this the fault of Dr. Robin West and her fellow doctors? I have no idea, okay? I'm not here to just say that, oh, yeah, these doctors stink. They're terrible at their jobs. Look at all these post-surgery infections. Like, I don't know. Sometimes this stuff just happens, and it's nobody's fault. So to sit here and, and you know, just say, oh, Dr. Robin West is terrible at her job, and all these Inova doctors have no clue what they're doing. Like, no, I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is this had been a problem for Washington. And you've got to think that Ron Rivera, upon becoming Washington's head coach, January 2020, did a deep dive into all of this to say, what the heck is going on with this team and this medical staff stuff slash training staff stuff? And you wonder what conclusions Ron Rivera arrived at. We do know this. Washington's training staff has been overhauled. Washington, before it formally hired Ron Rivera's head coach, fired Larry Hess. Larry Hess had been Washington's athletic trainer for years. He'd been with the team since 2002, had been the team's head athletic trainer since February 2010, had been very much a Dan Snyder guy. That was a big, big deal when Larry Hess got fired. Like, nothing was bigger than Bruce Allen being fired than the ouster of Brucifer. But Larry Hess getting whacked, that was like a close number two. Again, Hess had been with the team since 02, had been the team's head athletic trainer since February 2010. So Hess gets whacked. Ron Rivera, upon becoming head coach, one of the first things he does is set up a new training staff and also in some ways medical staff. Washington hires this guy, Ryan Vermillion, as head athletic trainer. Vermillion spent 18 seasons as a head athletic trainer for the Carolina Panthers, 2002 through 2019. Also worked for a long time for Don Shula during his run as Miami Dolphins head coach, 1992 to 2000. But Hess gets fired, Ryan Vermillion gets hired, and then the day after the Vermillion hiring was announced, Washington announced the hiring of this guy, Dr. Kevin Wilk, as the team's new medical consultant. His job is reporting directly to Vermillion. Uh, Wilk, a leading authority in the rehabilitation of sports injuries. He's worked with a lot of big names. Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson, Drew Brees, Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Eli Manning has worked extensively as well with Dr. James Andrews. So all of this stuff is stuff we know. There's a lot with this Inova, Dr. Robin West situation we don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. But it's hard to look at, first of all, the baptism of fire stuff we've been chronicling. All these longtime behind-the-scenes people getting whacked over the last few months, right? Whether you're talking about the director of football operations, Paul Kelly, he had been Washington's director of football operations since February 2010. He was a longtime Bruce Allen guy. Paul Kelly, out. A bunch of people in the scouting department, Jeff Scott, Cole Spencer, Brian Zekis, all these guys, Bruce Allen guys, all these guys, out. Whether you're talking about someone like Kyle Smith, right? I mean, there's kind of an obvious one there, but let's not forget about that one. Vice President of Player Personnel had been with the team since joining it as an intern in 2010. Another Bruce Allen guy, he's out. You know, you go back to last offseason, right? Uh, Eric Schaefer, longtime capologist for the Washington football team. He got ousted. So you have this phenomenon of Ron Rivera, one by one, like the baptism of fire, whacking all of those he no longer wants as a part of the operation, whacking all of those who Ron feels like are in the way and then you get this Inova announcement on Friday. And it's just, to me, it's hard to look at that and not wonder 
was this a call that was made by Ron? You know, was Ron unimpressed with what he had been seeing? Was Ron, upon coming to Washington as the head coach and the coach-centric approach, saying, okay, we'll stick with this Inova situation for another year and we'll see where we're at. But at the end of the season, Ron Rivera decided, I can do better here. You know, there there have been too many mishaps. There's been too much confusion. There's been too much in the way of post-surgery infection. We're going to move on to something else. You know, you just have to wonder about that. Consider this, too, one of the great achievements for the Washington football team in 2020 was the team in the 2020 regular season having the fewest number of players put on a COVID-19 list, just two. Washington did an outstanding job with the coronavirus. Both guys, by the way, uh, weren't even on the active roster. Washington put Matt Ioannidis on the reserve COVID-19 list, off him having been on the reserve slash injured list, and put running back Javon Leak on the COVID-19 practice squad list. So your only two COVID-19 situations during the season in terms of guys officially not being available to you, one guy was an IR guy, another guy was a practice squad guy, right? I know, Dwayne Haskins didn't wear a mask at a party with strippers, but remember, Dwayne ended up not testing positive for COVID-19. But anyway, Washington did an outstanding job with the virus, and who did Ron always credit for that? He never, not one time, mentioned the medical staff He always mentioned Ryan Vermillion, always mentioned the head athletic trainer, that Ryan Vermillion had done such a great job when it came to COVID-19. I know this, it's a big deal, and it's significant that Inova is no longer in bed with the Washington football team after this season. It's significant, it's a big deal that the doctor who had been all over the place with all the Alex Smith stuff over the last year, right? I mean, you go back and you watch the ESPN documentary on Alex Smith and what he went through with the 17 surgeries on the right leg. Dr. Robin West is prominently featured in that. And she is a very well-respected doctor. She's not some quack. Like, she's got an excellent reputation. The Nationals work with Dr. Robin West. And yet, the relationship is ending between West and Inova and the Washington football team. And this gets announced, by the way, on what day? A Friday. What do you do when you want to bury a news item? What do you do when you're not particularly proud or happy about something that's becoming official? You put it out on a Friday. That is the classic news dump day in the news cycle, right? If you follow politics, when you got something bad to announce as a politician, you put it out on a Friday. Put it out on a Friday at like 5, 6 o'clock and it gets completely buried. This got announced, this Innova thing, by Innova, on a Friday. So yeah, could this totally be Innova's call? Absolutely. A lot we don't know. But it's impossible not to wonder. It's impossible to me not to ask some of the questions I've just asked. And it's impossible not to think that this, at the very least, could be another example of Don Ron putting his handprint on the Washington football team. Well, believe it or not, the Nationals 2021 season is going to be beginning soon. Major League Baseball with the announcement on Sunday night that the Nats will begin their 2021 season on Tuesday against the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. Now, will this be still a three-game series? It was supposed to be a three-game series, but it was supposed to take place Monday through Wednesday. So is it now going to take place Tuesday and Wednesday and just be a two-game series? Is it going to be a three-game series over those two days, i.e. we get a doubleheader on one of the days, and that's to have an off day on Thursday, so how might that impact things? We don't know, but for now, Nationals Braves Tuesday at Nationals Park. It feels so good to be able to say that. Uh, the Nationals' most recent round of COVID-19 testing producing no new positives, 
So as long as things stay on course, we will have meaningful regular season baseball at Nats Park on Tuesday. So with this Nationals COVID-19 mess, well, I guess we'll start with uh, where we finished, right? So we last spoke on this podcast, of course, on Friday. And it was later on Friday that MLB announced that the remainder of the Nats season opening series with the New York Mets and Nationals Park had been postponed, quote, due to continued follow-up testing and contact tracing involving members of the Nationals organization, end quote. Now, Mike Rizzo in his Zoom press conference on Friday said that that previous player who had been likely positive for COVID-19 was in fact positive. So at that point, you had four Nats players who had tested positive for COVID-19, and you had five Nats players who had been deemed close contact. So nine total players and a staff member were having to quarantine at that point for at least a week or possibly more. Rizzo on Friday did say, though, that the one player who had been symptomatic uh, had been feeling close to normal now. So, you know, no one at any point here with this Nationals COVID-19 situation has been in, like, terrible shape or anything like that. So that's been very good news. Sunday morning, we finally got some names. Now, the Nationals still have not officially named anyone who's tested positive for COVID-19, but this has been a huge part of all this, right? It's like, well, who is tested positive? Who are you going to be without as your season is getting going here? Because even if the Nats do play the Braves on Tuesday, the Nationals are still set to be without a number of players, right? Nine players are either uh, guys who've tested positive or have been deemed close contact, so not going to be available to the Nats on Tuesday. Multiple reports did emerge on Sunday morning that the Nats were expecting to begin their season without the following four players. Kyle Schwarber, Josh Harrison, John Lester, and Alex Avila. So that doesn't mean that all four guys tested positive, but that does give you a sense of who the Nationals are looking at being without. So that matters a lot, right? Like, okay, was this a situation where you're set to be without, you know, Juan Soto, Trey Turner, Victor Robles, Steven Strasburg, right? Or is it more along the lines of what we just read to you? Schwarber, Harrison, Lester, and Davila. And of course, that's only four names there. So there's still another five players who you got to find out about. So at, at least a little bit of the picture was becoming clear with that. Later on Sunday, Mike Rizzo in another one of these Zoom pressers announced that one more player and one more staff member had been put and mandatory quarantine after the D.C. Department of Health deemed them to be close contacts to those who had previously tested positive for COVID-19. Remember, part of this whole situation is the ultra-strict rules that D.C. has made the Nats abide by during the pandemic. So as things stand now, as you and I are speaking on this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, you have 13 people unavailable to the Nationals. The four players who've tested positive for COVID-19, and then the seven players and now two staffers who have been designated as close contacts. Four players test positive, seven players close contacts, two staffers close contacts. The other interesting thing about this Rizzo Zoom presser on Sunday was this. Boy, did he make it clear. He made it crystal clear that he did not believe the Nats should be playing a game on Monday, okay? I wonder how much of this MLB announcement on Sunday night, the Nats-Braves game from Monday being postponed had to do with Rizzo saying we don't want to play on Monday. And the reason Rizzo didn't want the Nats to play on Monday is that the Nats had not even worked out essentially since the previous Monday, March 29th, right? That was a day on which the Nats played their final exhibition game down in Florida. So Rizzo, you know, he looks at this, I think, in a very sobering way. And that is, it's not just that we want to win games early in the season because you always want to win games. 
It's that the Nats' early season schedule is brutal. I mean, look at what you're starting your season with. A series against the three-time defending National League East champion, Atlanta Braves. Like, yeah, it's early, but these are still big games, right? I mean, who knows what this NL East race is going to end up looking like come September. But if it's tight between the Nats and the Braves, and you got swept in your opening series by the Braves, like, that could loom large as the season goes on. So Rizzo's like, hey, man. Uh, we want to be at our best or at least close enough to our best given this situation to begin the season. If the Nats were beginning their season against, you know, the Rockies, I'm not sure that Rizzo is as adamant as he's been about, hey, we need to work out before we get going here in terms of meaningful baseball. So I thought that really stood out uh, on Sunday. So bottom line, bottom line, this ultra tedious situation looks like it may finally be ending from a standpoint of the Nationals not playing, all right? Looks like they will be playing on Tuesday. Hopefully the news continues to be trending in that direction on Monday. But what the Nats will look like, we do not know. Who else will be unavailable to the Nats beyond Schwarber, Harrison, Lester, and Davila? We do not know. How long all of those set to be unavailable to the Nats? We do not know. Um, that's kind of where things stand right now with the Nationals. I, I, I tell you, I, it, it's not fun talking about this stuff because it, like I said, it's like laborious it's, it gets kind of boring. You know, it gets confusing with all this stuff. It's like, can we just talk about baseball? Can we just see the teams play? But unfortunately, uh, this is the reality right now for baseball and, of course, uh, the rest of the country, as you may have heard. So hopefully we get Nats Braves on Tuesday for sure, and Monday ends up being an uneventful day when it comes to uh, news with the Nationals COVID-19 situation. Now, there was another thing that came up on Sunday with the Nats, and it was another item of bad news. I tell you, the last like week plus for the Nats, it's been one bad thing after another. So it turns out that Mason Denneberg recently underwent Tommy John surgery. You say, well, who's Mason Denneberg? If you're a Nats fan, you likely know the name, but if you're not, Mason Denneberg was the Nationals' 2018 first-round pick. The Nats took Denneberg out of a Florida high school with the number 27 overall pick in the 2018 MLB draft. He underwent shoulder surgery in the fall of 2019, and now it's come out that he recently underwent Tommy John surgery. So that's obviously not good news. Now, it doesn't mean that the guy is a total bust and is never going to do anything. Plenty of guys have undergone Tommy John surgery. Uh, Jordan Zimmerman, you may recall, underwent Tommy John during his time in the farm system, ended up being just fine for the Nationals at the major league level. Although, boys, he had a hard time of it with the Detroit Tigers. The Nats could not have played that in a more perfect manner, the Jordan Zimmerman situation. They had him at his best. They let him walk, sign a big money deal with the Detroit Tigers, and Zimmerman's been a mess ever since. Boy, the Nats timed that out perfectly. But anyway, uh, it's not like Denneberg's a lost cause at this point, but it clearly is in a rough way here, right? First, the shoulder surgery in the fall of 2019, now the Tommy John surgery. But here's kind of a larger issue here. This recent run of Nationals first round picks continues to be brutal. You know, the Nats had a great run of first round picks from 2009 through 2011. Steven Strasburg, Drew Storen, Bryce Harper, Anthony Rendon, and then also this guy, Alex Meyer, who ended up not being anything as a major league player, but Alex Meyer, the Nationals used to acquire Denard Spann in a trade with the Minnesota Twins in November 2012. So like that run, 2009 through 2011, the Nats did one good thing after another with their first round pick. Since then, it's been a much different story. 2012, Lucas Giolito. 2013, you didn't have a first round pick due to the signing of Rafael Soriano. 
2014, Eric Fetty. 2015, you didn't have a first-round pick due to the signing of Max Scherzer. Okay, I think we can all uh, accept that. 2016, you had two first-round picks, Carter Keboom, who so far has been a flop, and Dane Dunning. Uh, he was included in that Nationals package to the Chicago White Sox for Adam Eaton. So, okay, you want to say Dunning worked out fine. That's all right. But 2017, this guy Seth Romero, who has been a disaster so far, has had off-the-field issues, underwent Tommy John surgery August 2018. 2018, the Denneberg pick. And now the last two years, two other pitchers, Jackson Rutledge in 2019, Cade Cavalli in 2020. I talked about this during spring training. The Nats so need the Rutledge and Cavalli picks to work out. The Nationals have not done a good job in recent years of producing pitching from the minor league level. All of the Nats' quality pitching essentially has come from trades and free agent signings. And it's like the farm system, which is what you always want to be doing well, has not been going well for the Nationals. MLB Pipeline back in January ranked its top 100 prospects in baseball. The Nationals had just one. It was Cavalli, and he was number 99. But you look at this recent run of first-round picks. I mean, it's rough. You know, Giolito is very good right now for the Chicago White Sox, but he wasn't good for the Nationals, right? And they included him in that package for Eaton. Uh, no pick for Soriano, a signing that didn't work out. Fetty so far has not worked out. No pick for signing Scherzer, like I said, okay, fine. But Keyboom, not working out. Seth Romero so far, not working out. And now Denneberg off the shoulder surgery a few years ago, coming off the Tommy John surgery. So wish him the best for sure. Like I said, it's not like he's a total lost cause. But man, the Nationals have got to start hitting on these first round picks. And you cannot overstate the extent to which the Nats need Jackson Rutledge and Cade Cavalli to ultimately work out at the major league level. Especially, you know, with this being Max Scherzer's contract season and who knows where he's going to be pitching next season. I think there's a good chance he's back with the Nats, but uh, that's not a guarantee. And of course, Max is getting older, so he's not going to be dominant forever. You know, you have John Lester on a one-year contract. At some point, it would be nice to not do the Joe Ross versus Eric Fetty versus Austin Voth thing for like a 17th consecutive year for the number five spot. Like, you want to have an infusion of young arms into your rotation here. Hopefully, Rutledge and Cavalli can provide that. But for now, Mason Denneberg, this news on Sunday, it's another negative item when it comes to the Nationals' recent run of first-round picks. So how about the weekend for the Turge? If someone asks you, hey, did you have a nice weekend? What's your answer on this Monday? I can tell you what Mark Turgeon's answer is. Hails to the yeah, I had myself a good weekend. So we start with what happened on Friday. What was Good Friday? And it was literally a Good Friday for Mark Turgeon. Multiple reports that Maryland is finalizing a contract extension for Mark Turgeon. Now, the extension still is not official, so we don't know the length. We don't know the money, but we do know that a contract extension is coming. Maryland had to pick a direction here. Turge, in October 2016, signed a contract extension through the 2022-2023 season. We all know how this works in major college sports. You can't have your head coach under contract for just two more years, as was set to be the case with Turgeon for recruiting purposes. So you had to pick a direction. You were either going to extend him or you were going to say, bye-bye, we're going to try to do better here. And Maryland very clearly has chosen the former. The Turge is getting extended. And then came the big news on Saturday. Not one, but two major transfers acquired by the Terrapins. Georgetown transfer, Kudis Wahab, and Rhode Island transfer, Fats Russell. More on those guys 
in a moment. But the biggest item clearly is Turgeon getting extended. And we're going to do a lot more on that coming up in just a few minutes here with our special guest, Jeff Ehrman, the founder and publisher of InsideMDSports.com. But I think here's where you start with the Turgeon extension. Parting ways with Turgeon probably wasn't ever financially feasible for Maryland. You know, it was impossible to ignore on Friday that on the same day we get the reports that Maryland's finalizing this extension for Turgeon, we also get the University of Maryland in an update on the university's finances and budget announcing that the COVID-19 pandemic has cost the school's intercollegiate athletics $40 million in revenues. Okay, so you're talking about things like ticket sales, sponsorships, etc. $40 million in revenues have gone bye-bye for Maryland athletics due to the COVID-19 pandemic. You combine that with that $3.5 million settlement that Maryland reached with the family of Jordan McNair this past January. And the Maryland Athletic Department, shall we say, not exactly in stellar financial shape these days. Buying out Turgeon as of April 1st per USA Today was going to cost Maryland $6.647 million. Maryland, truthfully, was not in the position to be paying off $6.647 million to buy off the Turge, off losing the $40 million in revenues due to the pandemic, off settling with Jordan McNair's family at $3.5 million. Now, I know all it takes is one Richie Rich donor to make his or her voice heard and write the check and you can buy out the coach. I understand that. But just looking at things and saying, okay, unless some big daddy Warbucks comes along and writes a check to buy out the Turge, you weren't in a position to make this work financially. And so I think that's a huge part of what's happened here with Mark Turgeon. I think another thing to be thinking about is this. Damon Evans is Maryland's director of athletics. Did he just extend Turgeon because Evans wanted to or because Evans felt like he had to, right? With the financial state of things, is Evans extending Turgeon because Evan wants to extend Turgeon or simply because Evans feels like he has to extend Turgeon? Remember, Damon Evans did not hire Mark Turgeon. Kevin Anderson was Maryland's director of athletics when Turgeon got hired as head coach in May 2011. And it had been very telling this past Maryland basketball season that as Turgeon had done his best coaching job with the Terps, okay? And let's be honest, right? One of the reasons it was Turgeon's best coaching job is because the roster was underwhelming. The roster was underwhelming because of Turgeon, right? He's the head coach. He's the head recruiter. He's essentially the general manager of the program. The roster he put together was highly flawed. But Mark overall, I thought, did a good job with the roster. And yet with Turgeon doing this good job, Evans had been publicly non-committal regarding Turgeon's future on multiple occasions. Evans would not commit to Turgeon. Uh, I've heard Evans and Turgeon, uh, not exactly uh, kumbaya, okay? They don't love each other. Not to say that they're like at each other's throats, but, you know, they're not two peas in a pod. Like, again, Evans did not hire Turgeon. And these public comments from Evans throughout the season where he'd get asked about Turgeon's contract situation and wouldn't commit at all, really wouldn't want to address it. Uh, I thought that spoke volumes. I think Damon Evans was posturing to part ways with Turgeon had the season played out in a different way. But Turgeon ended up doing well enough to where it's hard to make the argument of, okay, you got to get rid of him. It's like, no, it's more the argument of, yeah, he's done a pretty good job here, but he hasn't done a great job. And, you know, he got walloped by Bama in the second round of the NCAA tournament. And we're exactly where we're going here with Mark Turgeon. Had Maryland ended up cratering? Remember, Maryland was 1-5 in in the Big Ten. Had that continued, then I think it's a much easier case for Evans to make 
to the university of we got to part ways with this guy. It's a little more complicated when the team ends up finishing, you know, not with a great record, but a record in a strong conference, at least in the regular season, where you say, okay, the team didn't stink or anything like that. And the team, for whatever it's worth, did win a game in the NCAA tournament. So I wonder about that. Did Evans do this because he wanted to or because he feels like he has to? Look, with Mark Turgeon, we all know the deal by now. He's had a high floor, low ceiling run, okay? 10 years now as Terps head coach. He has made the NCAA tournament in five of the last six seasons for which there has been an NCAA tournament. But of course, just the one Sweet 16 appearance that coming in 2016. For comparison's sake, Gary Williams made the Sweet 16 seven times in making the NCAA tournament in each of 11 consecutive seasons. Turgeon's Maryland teams have never really been that bad, but have never really been that great. You know, his best team was the team in 2019-2020, 24-7 overall, 14-6 in the Big Ten, won the Big Ten regular season title. But of course, there was no NCAA tournament that season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll never know what that team would have done in that tournament. But I tell you this, to just assume that that team would have made a deep run, you can't assume that. And it may well be that Turgeon's lucky there wasn't an NCAA tournament for that season because what if that team had been one and done or two and done? The heat on the Turge would be even hotter because it's like, hey, here you had a good team, a really good team, and you ended up doing basically nothing in the NCAA tournament. You know, Mark's teams have been generally good defensively with the Terps, but have been slow and frustrating offensively, right? We've had so many of these lengthy scoring droughts in games for Maryland. Like the book on Turgeon as Terps head coach at this point, we all know it. We all get what it is. The idea hasn't been, should Maryland be trying to do better in terms of achievement? Like, heck yeah, it should be. One Sweet 16 over Turgeon's 10 seasons. One Sweet 16 appearance since Gary's last Sweet 16 in 2003. It's not good enough. So the, 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 the debate has not been, should Maryland be trying to be better? The debate has been, is Turgeon the guy to get Maryland to be better? And at this point, I mean, 10 seasons as a sample size, it's, it's you know, I don't know that you say like, this is uh, not what he's going to be. Like, he's still on the rise here. Like, no, he's well into his 50s. He's been a head coach for decades in college basketball. Like, Mark Turgeon essentially is who he is. Now, that said, that said, I will say this. And I know for me, as a Maryland fan, a guy who went to Maryland, this is kind of what I'm clinging to here with the Turge. All it does take is one run to change the narrative. And that's what you got to hope for here with Mark Turgeon, okay? So Mark Turgeon, if you look at his entire career as a head coach in major college basketball, 10 NCAA tournament appearances with Wichita State, Texas A&M, and Maryland. He has made just two Sweet 16s, 2006 with Wichita State, 2016 with Maryland. That's it. It's not a great NCAA tournament track record. 10 appearances, just two Sweet 16 appearances. Like, it used to be said about Gary Williams that all he would do is make the Sweet 16, that he couldn't get past the Sweet 16, but at least he made a bunch of Sweet 16s. Gary Williams made it to six Sweet 16s over his first 10 NCAA tournament appearances as head coach of Boston College, Ohio State, and Maryland. Then, of course, Gary broke through the glass ceiling with the back-to-back Final Fours with the Terps in 2001 and 2002, when Maryland, of course, won the national championship. But that is the difference. Like you could say, well, Gary uh, had a label of he could only get you so far. That's true. But at least Gary was making a bunch of sweet 16s. Again, six over his first 10 NCAA tournament appearances. But you know, with the national championship game on Monday night, with the final four on Saturday night, and that epic Gonzaga-UCLA 
game. Think about the two head coaches in that game. And, and this, to me, again, is what you have to cling to at this point if you're a Maryland fan with Turgeon, okay? So Mick Cronin, the UCLA head coach, Mick Cronin, prior to this season, had made one Sweet 16 over 11 NCAA tournament appearances as head coach for Murray State and Cincinnati. So Turgeon won Sweet 16 in 10 NCAA tournament appearances. Cronin coming into the season won Sweet 16 in 11 NCAA tournament appearances. And then, of course, what has happened this season, right? Cronin making the Final Four as UCLA head coach. All it took is one season, one run, and people now view Mick Cronin very differently. How about Mark Few, the Gonzaga head coach? So Gonzaga, all Gonzaga ever does is make the NCAA tournament, right? Gonzaga had advanced to four Sweet 16s, but never further over 15 consecutive NCAA tournament appearances. This run for the Zag started with the 1999-2000 season. Beginning with that season with Mark Few, 15 straight NCAA tournament appearances, four Sweet 16s, but never further. It was a thing for a while with Gonzaga of, yeah, it's great that this school from the Pacific Northwest keeps making NCAA tournaments, but this school never really does much in these NCAA tournaments. Hadn't gotten past the Sweet 16 over 15 straight NCAA tournament appearances. However, over the last six seasons now for which we've had NCAA tournaments, Gonzaga has not just made the NCAA tournament each time, but Gonzaga has advanced past the Sweet 16 four times in making it to at least the Sweet 16 each time. So Mark Few couldn't get the Zags past the Sweet 16 for 15 straight years, but over the last six seasons for which we've had an NCAA tournament, four advancements past the Sweet 16, and he's gotten to at least a Sweet 16 each time. The narrative has changed when it comes to Mark Few and Gonzaga. That's what you have to hope for with Turgeon, that there is a Cronin-like run, a Few-like breakthrough in terms of finally, for whatever reason, Turgeon gets the Terps to not just another Sweet 16, but to beyond. Because that's been the thing. There just has not been a lot of high achievement for Mark Turgeon. It's not even just an NCAA tournament thing. It's also been a regular season thing. Like there just have not been very many big regular season wins for the Terps under the Turge. It took forever for Maryland to win a road game against a ranked team under Mark Turgeon. Like that to me was always a big indictment of Mark Turgeon. The team just doesn't author a lot of big moments, a lot of big wins. Gary Williams was a dragon slayer during his time as Maryland head coach. The Terps had so many wins over number one ranked teams. Haven't had anything close to that with Turgeon. And again, we're talking about 10 seasons. Can Maryland do better than Mark Turgeon as a head coach? Yes, absolutely. But the Terps also can do worse given the financial state. I get why he's being extended, but I'm not sitting here telling you I have any real faith that the next few seasons are going to be appreciably different than the last few seasons. All you can hope for is, like I said, a breakthrough, the likes of which we have seen, especially with guys like Mick Cronin and Mark Few in recent years. And if a breakthrough is going to happen next college basketball season, you got to think it's going to be due at least in part to these two transfers. And you do wonder, right? Turgeon getting extended, how much of that had to do with Turgeon landing these two transfers? First of all, Kudus Wahab. When the news came out that Kudus Wahab was transferring from Georgetown, I said it on this podcast, boy, would he be a great fit for Maryland. And it ends up working out that he's going to Maryland. The 6'11 Nigerian on Saturday announcing he is transferring to Maryland. Wahab, this past season for Georgetown, his sophomore season, over 26 games, 
the following per game averages. 12.7 points on 59.1% shooting, 8.2 rebounds, and 1.6 blocks. Well, Hop played a big role in the Hoyas' stunning run to win the Big East tournament this year. He, over the Hoyas' four wins in the Big East tournament, averaged 14.3 points on 61.3% shooting and 8.3 rebounds and was a big part of Georgetown's much-improved defense in the conference tournament. It was amazing. It was 1985 all over again with the Hoyas defensively in that Big East tournament. Georgetown's defense had left a lot to be desired, not just this season, but in recent seasons. But in that Big East tournament, Georgetown brought it defensively. Wahab was a big part of that. And then when it came to Georgetown in the NCAA tournament, uh, no, it did not go well. 12-seeded Hoyas getting ripped by five-seeded Colorado, 96-73. But the lone Hoya who you could truly say had a good game in terms of producing throughout the game was Wahab. 20 points on 7-12 shooting, 12 rebounds, including four offensive boards in just 24 minutes as a starter. Now, he is not a polished product. He does get into foul trouble. He does struggle on his free throws. But Wahab can score. Wahab can shoot a little bit. Wahab, Wahab can rebound. Wahab can block shots. Wahab can defend. Like, this is what Maryland has needed. Maryland was so lacking in size this past season. Wahab truly helps to fix that. So a great get for the Turds, no doubt. And then you have this point guard, Fats Russell. All right, first of all, he has maybe the greatest name in college basketball history, Fats Russell. Uh, he's not fat, by the way. He's fat as a baby. That's why he has that as his nickname. But anyway, Rhode Island transfer. He's a point guard listed by Rhode Island as being 5'11". He, this past season for Rhode Island as a senior, had the following per game averages over 23 games. 14.7 points, 4.5 assists versus 2.3 turnovers, 4.5 rebounds, and 1.9 steals. So this is a guy who can fill up the box score. Now, he's not a very good shooter. This would be the big concern with Fats Russell. He shot just 23.5% on threes this past season, and he shot just 39.5% on twos. So yeah, he's not perfect, okay? But this is someone who can score. This is someone who can distribute. This is someone who can rebound. You worry also about the size, you know, just 5'11 in the Big Ten, a brutal conference we know, a physical conference we know. Is Russell going to be able to live up to the defensive standard that Turgeon has set at Maryland? And you have to say that. Mark Turgeon's done a great job coaching up defense at Maryland uh, over the years here. So, you know, Russell, it's not like he's some lights out, slam dunk, you know, uh, Bob Cousy award nominee for Maryland that's just going to make everyone forget, you know, Steve Blake and Gravis Vasquez and Melo Trimble. But Fats Russell does have some game to him. And it's worth noting this. Uh, Russell went to the same high school, Imhotep Institute Charter High School in Philadelphia, as Dante Scott did. So Russell has a relationship with at least one of the Maryland players. The Terrapins are going to have expectations on them for this next college basketball season. And especially if Aaron Wiggins and Eric Ayala are back, the Terrapins should have expectations on them for next season. And there's going to be pressure on Mark Turgeon, and there should be pressure on Mark Turgeon. But regardless of how you feel about him being extended, and I very much have mixed feelings on it, I don't like at all the overall results of the Mark Turgeon era. I get where the school is at financially, but there's no doubt you can do better, and Maryland needs to be doing better. One Sweet 16 appearance since that last Gary Williams one in 2003 is unacceptable, okay? And a lot of that, yes, does have to do with Gary's final years, but so much of that, of course, has to do with Turgeon's run. 10 seasons, one Sweet 16 appearance, 
And, you know, there's also a thing with Turge of he, he likes to do the woe is us stuff, especially after that season ending loss to Alabama in the second round of the NC tournament where he talks about how, you know, come on guys, we weren't a final four team. You know, we were undersized. We maximized this team extremely well. Really? Was UCLA a final four team as an 11 seed as the first four team? And yet UCLA made the final four. So I, I don't like some of the talk I hear from Turge sometimes, but let's be honest here. All right. Even if you are a massive Turge denier, Saturday, was a very good day. Getting Wahab is big, all right, literally and figuratively. And I think this kid, Fats Russell, could end up helping out a lot as well. It was a how-do-you-like-me-now kind of weekend for Turgeon, but the work is just beginning. Going to be a big season for him and the Terps this next college basketball season. Well, as we've been discussing, big weekend of news for Maryland basketball. A man who was all over it is the man who joins me now. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, Jeff Ehrman, the founder, the publisher of InsideMDSports.com, a site I go to all the time. Jeff, great to have you on, man. How you doing? I'm great, Al. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming on very much. So Friday, we get the news that Maryland is extending Mark Turgeon. Saturday, we get the news that Georgetown transfer Kudus Wahab, maybe the best big man available and the transfer portal is transferring to Maryland. And we get the news that Rhode Island transfer Fats Russell, a point guard, is transferring to Maryland. Uh, to, to what extent was all of this perhaps related? Like, i.e. Maryland extending Turgeon, at least in part, because he's bringing in some top transfers. Yeah, I think it was related. You know, I think that once those recruits got the word that he was being extended, it helped him seal the deal with them just to know that he's going to be there coaching them more so with Wahab because he's got multiple years of eligibility uh, and then I'm sure Maryland you know they probably wanted to kind of tailor the announcement of the extension around these you know to kind of give it a little obviously there was no shortage of negative feedback about the extension so then you you know you kind of add these two to the mix and all of a sudden it's an entirely different narrative. Yeah, no doubt about that. So, so let's deal with the extension, because that's obviously the biggest item of news. Maryland, of course, essentially was at a crossroads with Turge, having just the two seasons left on his existing contract. Why ultimately did Maryland extend Turgeon and not part ways with him? Well, I think it was a few things. You know, first off, it's hard to fire a guy who's been making the tournament almost every year, uh, perception-wise and also in the coaching community for whoever you might hire next, they might think, huh, what's going to happen to me? And then, you know, financially, Turgeon would have been owed a $6 million buyout, which, you know, the school is struggling financially. They lost $40 million supposedly because of COVID. Uh, they, they obviously had to spend a lot of money semi-recently to pay off DJ Durkin and uh, a $3 million payout to Jordan McNair's family. And then, of course, all these facilities that they've been investing lots of money in. So, you know, I think even if they wanted to, to make a move, which depending on who you talk to, it's, you know, they might have, uh, it just wasn't feasible right now for them financially. And, you know, and Turgeon, it's not like he's done a bad job. It's just the same, you know, the same criticisms as always about going deep in March and uh, things like that. So you mentioned there may have been some division about what to do with Turgeon. What is the nature of his relationship with the director of athletics, Damon Evans? I mean, we know Evans did not hire Turgeon. Evans was very noncommittal to Turgeon during this past Maryland basketball season. I've heard the two aren't exactly in love with each other. What's your sense on how Evans and Turgeon get along? I think they have a good cordial working relationship where, 
nobody's trying to sabotage each other or anything like that, but I don't think it's a, this is my guy kind of scenario, ride or die. Cause like you said, Damon didn't hire him. You know, I don't think he's been over the top excited with the results. I think obviously the results have been solid, but you know, he wants to see more. And he hears what the fans say. You know, you got to imagine his email uh, inbox is blown up on a daily basis at times. So I think, you know, it's not a, it's not a toxic relationship like Gary Williams and Debbie Yao back in the day, but, uh, you know, it, they're not necessarily tied together at the hip. So you hit on what is the big complaint with Turgeon. It's not that he's like, you know, a terrible coach. It's that, you know, they just haven't had a lot of high achievement. Like they haven't had deep NCAA tournament runs. I mean, there really haven't been that many big regular season wins. I mean, I remember it took him forever to win a road game against a ranked team as Maryland head coach. How realistic do you think is all of that changing? Like, you know, obviously we're 10 years into his tenure as Terps head coach. To, to what extent is it right to say, well, he just is what he is versus, hey, you know, all it takes is for one breakthrough NCAA tournament run to change the perception of this guy? Yeah, I mean, clearly what you the second part of what you said is true just by the nature of the tournament. You know, look at uh, Mick Cronin at UCLA. His his whole reputation has been a great regular season coach. He can never win in March, even in the first and second round. Now he's in the final four. So it does just take that one run. But at the same time, there's many years of data on Turgeon to where he hasn't, you know, he's got the, the couple sweet 16s, one at Wichita State, one in Maryland. You know, Maryland fans will tell you the one he had there, they kind of backed into with two pretty easy opponents and then, you know, played Kansas close for a half and then got blown out. So, you know, it's a little bit of both, but clearly, you know, people are very skeptical at this point after 10 years of whether he's capable of making a Final Four run. Uh, the Big Ten tournament results haven't been great either, but, you know, it, it's really hard because so there's so much outside importance put on March on that one-and-done uh, setup as opposed to, like, you know, the NBA, obviously, where you have a seven-game series. But, that you know, it's not like that just works against him. That's the nature of the beast, but... You know, long story short, now with this extension and with these two new guys on board, I think there will be high expectations to break through that next year. Yeah, and I want to get to the new guys momentarily. The, the two things that are said all the time about Turgeon is he's very good when it comes to coaching up defense, not as good when it comes to coaching up offense. He is, by and large, a good recruiter, but he's not a very good in-game coach. Are all those labels accurate, in your opinion? Well, I think it's kind of gone up and down. There's been like a sliding scale. Like last year, the recruiting was not very good. That's why the team was so short-handed. But I thought the in-game coaching was very good. Probably easily his best coaching job to get that team to the tournament. I mean, that was not a deep team or super talented team by any stretch. Uh, when they started one and five, it looked like obviously everybody wrote them off for dead. So no, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say he's a great recruiter or a bad in-game coach. I think he's above average. Above average at both, I think it's probably a fair way to put it. Um, not, you know, hasn't proven himself to be in that elite class of either one. Uh, but, you know, the recruiting, I think, early in his career earned him as a, re- a reputation as being a recruiter. And then that kind of tailed off for a couple of years. And now, clearly, he needs to – he's gotten these two players and he needs to keep recruiting at a high level. One more on Turgeon. So, of course, there have been many big-time head coaching vacancies in college basketball just over the last few weeks, right? North Carolina, Texas, Oklahoma, Marquette. Had the Maryland job become vacant, would it have been among the more attractive jobs or not really? 
Yeah, I mean, in most years, it would be number one. A few weeks ago, I was talking to people, and I thought it would be number one, and then all of a sudden, you have Carolina, Indiana. Uh, so, you know, it would be right there in that tier, right behind Carolina and Indiana, which are arguably two of the top five. I mean, Carolina might be the best job. Indiana's not what it used to be, but it's still a great job. Behind those two, though, there, there would have been no uh, better job. But at the same time, I don't feel like there were a lot of really compelling options out there to hire. You know, you weren't going to steal Chris Beard or Nate Oates or the really hot commodity kind of guys. So then you probably would have had to take a chance on a, you know, mid-major up-and-comer kind of guy. So, you know, now maybe at some point if there is a coaching search, whether it's next year or five years from now, uh, maybe you have better options than you would have this year. Talking with Jeff Ehrman, the founder and publisher of InsideMDSports.com. All right, so let's get to the two big coups that came out on Saturday in terms of transfers. Maryland gets the Georgetown big man, the 6'11", Kudis Wahab. Obviously, Maryland had a major size problem this past Maryland basketball season. Does Wahab coming to the Terp solve that problem? Yeah, I mean, I think he still, it still wouldn't hurt to get another big man for some depth because they not only did they not have a starting big man, but they really didn't have anybody else. You know, they were very limited, obviously, in the post. But, I mean, yeah, for the most part, he does. You look at his numbers last year as a sophomore, 12 points, almost eight rebounds, almost two blocks. I mean, he is a potential star. So he, he, to me, will get all the minutes he can possibly handle. He played 27 per game as a sophomore, so he's not one of these big men who you say, all right, we'll be happy if we can get 20 minutes out of him. So, and, and the good news, I think, for Maryland is – it forced them to learn how to play the small ball style. So now even if at times when he's in foul trouble or needs a rest or whatever else, they, they have this other style of play that they can go to. Yeah, and that is key because he does get into foul trouble. You talk to any Georgetown fan, yeah. uh, he or she will tell you that. With the point guard, the Rhode Island transfer, Fats Russell, uh, put up some numbers for sure for Rhode Island. Didn't have a very good shooting season, though. Is he automatically Maryland's top point guard for this next season? I don't know if automatically, but I would think there's a good chance that he's your point guard and you, you slide Eric Ayala over to the two for a, for a lot of the time. You know, Ayala was Maryland's leading scorer, but he wasn't obviously a true point guard. I think he was third or fourth on the team in assists, which is very unusual for your starting point guard. So, yeah, I don't think a guy like Russell's coming in unless he feels pretty confident that he's going to be playing the point a lot of the time. You mentioned Ayala. He and Aaron Wiggins, are they both definitely back? Do they test the NBA draft waters? What do you think happens with those guys? I think they'll both test the waters. Um, I think Ayala is more likely of the two to come back. You know, Wiggins obviously played really well late in the season. He had that huge game uh, against Alabama where, you know, even with the blowout, he was still probably the best player on the floor, arguably. So, you know, he, he's a little bit more of a long shot, but, you know, there is that chance that you could get – both back, and if you do, you got to be looking, I would think, at a top 10 preseason team. Yeah, and it would be nice to have that, and obviously it would be even better to live up to those expectations. Along those lines, so, I mean, one of the undeniable facts that was out there after that lost Alabama in the NCAA tournament was one Sweet 16 appearance for Maryland since that last one under Gary Williams in 2003. Like, that's a jarring fact to have as a basketball program, especially when you consider yourself to be, you know, one of the more prominent programs in the country, like one Sweet 16 over really like the last generation. This is a simple question with probably a complicated answer, but why is that? Like, how has that happened that Maryland has authored? I mean, under Gary, it was like one Sweet 16 after another. That used to be the complaint about Gary, right? That all he could do was make the Sweet 16. And then he, of course, blew that up. But 
Why just the one Sweet 16 since 03 for this program? Well, as you know, Al, things tailed off for Gary after the national championship those last five or so years. Uh, the recruiting went downhill a little bit, partially because he had assistants who got head coaching jobs after the national championship. So you saw guys like Billy Hahn and Dave Dickerson and Jimmy Patsos who were all getting those recruits. They all left for their own jobs. So there was turnover on the staff. You weren't quite getting the same kind of players. So, you, and obviously you had a few bad breaks, you know, the Michigan State game in the tournament that nobody ever wants to talk about. <laughs> um, and, and so he goes and there's not much left in the cupboard for Turgeon. So Turgeon needs a few years to rebuild. It really goes poorly in those first three years. He's on the hot seat, misses the tournament. And then you get Mello in there and you feel like you're going to have all these great runs and it didn't quite pan out as well as you thought it would. And like I said, you know, Turgeon, that's something he still needs to prove that he can win. You know, the first, the first few years, I think you give him a pass because back then the transfer, transfer portal wasn't such a quick fix. So there was more of a rebuilding football, football style rebuild, but. Yeah, I mean, you combine those two right there, those last five Gary years and those first three or four Turgeon, that's almost a decade right there. And so that's what I explain to people when they say, these fans are crazy. I don't understand why. Well, they're starved for success. They've had one sweet 16 in 15 years in, in their basketball school. For basketball school, like you said, to go to one sweet 16 in 15 years is, you know, a, a long drought. Yeah, it's a very humbling reality for those of us who are Maryland fans. There's no question about that. Well, look, man, you've been killing it on the site, InsideMDSports.com. Jeff Ehrman, the founder and publisher of the site. Appreciate your time so much. Thank you, Al. Thanks for having me. When we last spoke on this podcast about the Capitals, they were coming off a hideous loss last Thursday night. 8-4 loss at the New York Islanders. The Caps giving up eight goals in a game for the first time since January 2019. The Caps in this big showdown against Barry Trotz and the Isles getting shredded by the Islanders center Matthew Barzell, who finished with three goals and two assists. All eight of the Islanders' goals were even strength goals. There was just so much to despise for the Capitals in that game. Well, you had two games for the Capitals over the weekend at the New Jersey Devils, and leave it to the Devils to be just what the doctor ordered for the Capitals as they rebounded, and they rebounded nicely, the Caps did, over these last two games. Friday night, a 2-1 overtime win at the Devils. Sunday, a 5-4 win at the Devils. The Caps end up completing a regular season sweep of New Jersey. Now remember, the way this NHL season is constructed is that you're only playing games against teams within your division, and the NHL for this season has realigned its divisional setup. So the Caps are in this East Division, are playing nothing but East Division teams. The Caps went 8-0-0 against the Devils this season. First time in Caps history that they beat a team eight times in a single regular season. Now, the Devils aren't particularly good this year, but still, to go 8-0-0 against anybody, that's not easy to do, and the Caps just pulled it off. So whatever happens the rest of this season, we can say the Capitals owned the Devils. The Capitals were the Devils' daddies in the 2020-2021 season. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? Yes, thank you, Arnold, very much. Now, the Caps won this game on Sunday despite getting demolished in the puck possession battle. This was another one of these Caps wins this season in which the end result is great, 
but the process by which you arrived at the result was frightening. The Caps per natural stat trick on Sunday, just 29 five-on-five shot attempts to the Devils 54. I mean, how about that? You got outshot attempted in the five-on-five game by 25 by New Jersey on Sunday. And how about just shots on goal? The Caps for the game, just 19 shots on goal to the Devils 39. You were minus 20 in the shots on goal department. And that was especially pronounced over the first two periods. The Caps over the first two periods, just 12 shots on goal to the Devils 31. The Devils had two and a half times more shots on goal than the Caps had over the first two periods. And yet the Caps won the game. And this was in stark contrast to what we had on Friday night in that 2-1 overtime win for the Caps at the Devils. The five-on-five shot attempt battle in that game was essentially even, but the Caps finished that game with 40 shots on goal to the Devils' 23. Here was another thing, too, about this Caps win on Sunday that speaks to the Caps' overall record uh, not necessarily being reflective of the process. So the Caps scored five goals on Sunday on just 19 shots on goal. The Caps, as we speak on this Monday, are number one in the NHL in shooting percentage at 12.3. There have been a lot of studies over the years in hockey analytics on shooting percentage. And what has been found is, essentially, shooting percentage is random and luck-based. And while there is such a thing as some guys being better shooters than others, there also is very much a thing of just a lot of puck luck when it comes to the frequency with which your shots on goal become goals. And so you got to wonder about that too. Like how much of this exemplary shooting percentage that the Caps have this season? Again, an NHL best 12.3, five goals on just 19 shots on goal on Sunday. How much of that is skill? And I think skill is a part of it. No doubt Caps have a lot of skilled forwards, a lot of skilled players, period. But how much of that also is just the puck luck gods being on the Caps side so far this year? Anyway, Caps won on Sunday. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. You got really good goaltending on Sunday for the Caps. You got good goaltending uh, over both games, both wins at the Devils over the weekend. So we'll start with the game on Sunday. Ilya Samsonov was the Caps starting goaltender for a 10th time in 18 games on Sunday. And he gave up four goals. That is true. But he got bombarded. Like we just said, the Caps got smashed in the puck possession battle. Samsonov for the game ultimately stopping 35 of the 39 shots on goal that he faced. I mean, you can't say that he was great. He gave up four goals, but I don't know. I don't look at this as a normal performance where a guy gives up four goals and you say, man, he wasn't good. Like, no, I think if anything, Samsonov was more good than bad. You know, I didn't like seeing him give up the two goals later in the game. Caps were up 5-2, ended up winning 5-4. But Samsonov for the game per natural stat trick uh, stopped nine of the 11 high danger shots on goal that he faced, eight of the 10 medium danger shots on goal that he faced, and all 14 of the low danger shots on goal that he faced. And then in the 2-1 overtime win in New Jersey on Friday night, Vitek Vanacek was very good. He stopped 22 of the 23 shots on goal that he faced, including all 10 of the shots on goal that he faced in the third period in overtime. So by and large, I thought a good weekend for the goaltending. Uh, Cap special teams in the win on Sunday were great. One of three on the power play, four of four on the penalty kill. And the Caps got a shorthanded goal, a shorty. Uh, Carl Haglin, shorthanded goal, 241 into the third period for a 4-2 Caps lead the goal thanks to great hustle by Garnett Hathaway. Boy, has he been good for the Caps this season. Hathaway outraced the Devils defenseman Damon Severson to a loose puck in the neutral zone, creating a two-on-one rush for the Caps. Hathaway then with two Devils on him, passed the puck from the left circle through the slot to a wide-open Haglin in the right circle for a wrister. 
that beat the Devils goaltender, Mackenzie Blackwood. Excellent sequence there for the Caps. Alex Ovechkin had a goal and two primary assists on Sunday. The goal, a power play goal in the second period for a 3-1 Caps lead. Uh, this was a classic net presence goal. Ovi was camped next to the left post, deposited the rebound of a shot by Nicholas Backstrom from the right circle. The goal, the 265th career regular season power play goal for Ovechkin, tying him with Brett Hull for the second most regular season power play goals in NHL history. I've been saying this. It feels like every goal that Ovi scores these days is a milestone goal, right? He's tied with this guy or he gets surpassed that guy. Uh, sure enough, the power play goal for Ovechkin on Sunday, not some with the great Brett Hull for the second most regular season power play goals in NHL history. So Ovi had a three-point game. Evgeny Kuznetsov had a two-point game. He had a third period, even strength goal for a 5-2 caps lead and a secondary assist. And it was on the Kuzi goal that Ovi got one of his primary assists. The Kuzi goal coming via a great pass by Ovechkin, who took the puck from the high slot, skated the puck deep into the right circle, and then passed the puck under the stick of that Devils defenseman, Damon Severson, to Kuzi in the low slot for a snapshot that beat Blackwood. So some really good stuff from some of the Caps' top six forwards on Sunday. Also, Caps defensemen totaled five assists on Sunday. Dimitri Orloff and Brendan Dillon each had two assists. Justin Schultz had an assist. The Caps, as we speak on this Monday, second in the NHL in points by defensemen at 94. That's the thing with the Caps. Like, it's not just John Carlson who can rack up the points in terms of defensemen. Orloff can point produce. Dillon has point produced. Schultz was point producing on Sunday. You had five assists by Caps defenseman on Sunday. Not a single point coming from John Carlson, your top point producing defenseman, just to give you an idea of what Caps defenseman can do uh, from an offensive standpoint. So that was good to see. And speaking of Orloff, by the way, boy, was he great in that overtime win at the Devils on Friday night. Orloff in that game, the game winning goal, a team best five on five shot attempt percentage of 75 per natural stat trick. And Orloff tied with Ovechkin for the most shots on goal, six, and most total shot attempts, 11 on the team. Did commit a second period interference penalty, but whatever. Uh, Orloff had himself a really nice weekend. And that game-winning goal by Orloff on Friday night, even strength goal that came with just 20.8 seconds left in overtime. Orloff got the puck in the Cavs defensive zone, skated through the neutral zone, and then unleashed a wrister from the left circle that beat Mackenzie Blackwood. So really good stuff there from Orloff, especially on Friday night. One other thing with the Caps, and this was notable, Jacob Vrana, Jake the Snake, a healthy scratch for the Caps over these two games at New Jersey over the weekend. Uh, Vrana, you know, look, he's been a staple for the Caps, right, in terms of being a forward game in, game out, at times, you know, a top six guy for the Caps. Uh, not so much lately here. His playing time really had dipped over the previous, say, five games prior to the game on Friday night. Vrana gets replaced by Richard Ponick in the lineup. Peter Laviolette prior to that game on Friday night on Vrana. Quote, we've had many conversations just about his play with regard to the competitiveness of it and the speed of it. He's a very skilled player, but there's other aspects of the game that are very important. We're looking for a higher level of play. End quote. You did wonder off that awful performance by the Caps, in the 8-4 loss at the Islanders on Thursday night. Was someone going to pay a price? Uh, clearly, Jake the Snake paid that price. Now, I don't expect him to be a healthy scratch for long. He is one of the faster players on the Caps. He is one of the more skilled players on the Caps. And it's not like he hasn't produced this season. I mean, his game, yes, you can certainly say, has been up and down. 
But Rana has put up some numbers so far this year. 10 goals, 13 assists. I mean, it's not nothing. Okay, now the numbers haven't come lately. That is true. But the guy has proven himself to be a capable scorer, especially over these last few seasons. So I would expect, I would expect him to be back in the Caps lineup sooner rather than later. But that obviously was notable. Laviolette making Vrana a healthy scratch over these last two games. Caps now 25-9-4, alone in first in the East Division at 54 points. Two points ahead of the Islanders, four points ahead of the Pittsburgh Penguins. And guess what's next for the Capitals? Another game against the Islanders, a game at the Islanders, Tuesday night at 7. So the Capitals on Sunday completed a season sweep of the Devils, and the Orioles on Sunday completed a season opening sweep at the Boston Red Sox, as our friend Joe Angel would say. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, they were. Yes, they absolutely were. Now, what any of this means, who the heck knows, okay? The Orioles ultimately are probably going to end up sucking once again this season. But I tell you what, they didn't suck over the weekend. That's for darn sure. It starts with the starting pitching. Orioles starting pitching was outstanding in game one and was good enough in games two and three. And, you know, if you get this kind of starting pitching, you're going to be in games and series this season. Now, I don't expect this to last, but hey, for now, we'll go ahead and ride this. So John Means in that season opening 3 nothing win at Boston on Friday afternoon was outstanding. Seven scoreless innings, five strikeouts versus just one hit, a single, which was a leadoff single by Kike Hernandez in the bottom of the first and no walks on 97 pitches, 65 of which were strikes. Means retired the final 18 batters he faced. And it was great to see this with John Means. He is the Orioles' number one starter. He did not have a great 2020, dealt with left arm fatigue, dealt with the death of his father, but he was very good over the last four of his 10 starts in 2020. Means over his last four starts last season, a 152 ERA over 23 and two-thirds innings. And he was quite good for the Orioles in 2019. Had a 130 ERA plus means did over 155 innings in 2019. So to see means do as well as he did on Friday afternoon, very good to see. Then came the Matt Harvey start in that 4-2 win at Boston on Saturday afternoon, right? Harvey stunningly doesn't just make the Orioles season opening roster. He makes it as their number two starter, which I mean, yes, says a lot about the state of the Orioles starting pitching, no doubt, but Harvey was solid on Saturday afternoon. I mean, I don't want to overstate things. He only lasted four and two-thirds innings, but two runs and four and two-thirds innings, four strikeouts versus six hits, five of which were singles. The other one was a double and one walk on 86 pitches, 52 of which were strikes. I mean, he certainly wasn't dominant, okay? Uh, he's not going to make anyone forget Jim Palmer, but Harvey got the job done in that game on Saturday afternoon. And then in the win on Sunday afternoon, the 11-3 smashing of the Sox, the lefty, Bruce Zimmerman, was good enough. Three runs in six innings, five strikeouts, versus four hits. Now, he did give up a homer, two doubles, uh, in addition to a single, but issued just one walk through 73 pitches, 54 of which were strikes. So, definitely the means start belongs in a separate category vis-a-vis the Harvey and Zimmerman starts, but the starting pitching ultimately good enough to excellent over all three games. That brings us to that which was excellent for the Orioles over the weekend, and that was the bullpen. Uh, the bullpen, which is filled with a bunch of no-name guys, was awesome. Orioles relievers in the series combined for eight and a third scoreless innings. Hard to beat that. 
The win on Friday afternoon, Tanner Scott and Cesar Valdez each tossing a scoreless inning. The win on Saturday afternoon, Adam Pletko, Dylan Tate, and Cesar Valdez combining for four and a third scoreless innings on four strikeouts versus one hit, a single, and one walk. And this guy, Pletko, was really good in the win on Saturday afternoon. Two and a third scoreless innings. Pletko's the guy who they always acquired for cash considerations in a trade with the Cleveland Indians this patch, March 27th. So Pletko did well on Saturday. And then in the win on Sunday, Cole Solcer and Tyler Wells combining for three scoreless innings. So the likes of Cesar Valdez, Adam Pletko, Cole Solcer, and Tyler Wells were key arms out of the Orioles' bullpen in a three-game sweep at the Red Sox. Again, what does any of this mean? Who the heck knows? But it was fun to watch while it went on. And then when it came to the Orioles' offense, look, the offense really wasn't that good. Games one and two obviously did really well in that 11-3 win on Sunday. But how about Cedric Mullins? Okay, Cedric Mullins is the Orioles' center fielder. He was their leadoff batter in all three games. Mullins for the series, 9 of 13 with a walk. The nine hits were three doubles and six singles. Mullins in the win on Sunday reached base in all six of his plate appearances, went 5 of 5 with three doubles, two singles, and a walk. Uh, Mullins was like out of his mind at the plate over the weekend. The O's, interestingly, won this series, swept this series, despite not hitting a single homer the entire series. Basically, the only negative was Austin Hayes getting injured. Austin Hayes, the Orioles' left fielder, uh, leaving Sunday's game with right hamstring discomfort. So, yeah, it was fun. What does it mean? Probably not much, but hey, we'll take it. Uh, remember, the Orioles did do something similar in 2020. Started off the season well, 12-8, and eight, before going 13-27 and 27 the rest of the way. So, there may be many humblings to come. Heck, the humblings could start on Monday in game one of a three-game series at the New York Yankees. We all know the extent to which the Yankees have done the Orioles dirty in recent seasons. I will never forget what Glaber Torres did to Orioles pitching in 2019. But for now, you're 3-0. You are first in the American League East, and I'm not sure... I'm not sure how much longer we'll be able to say that. But anyway, three-game series gets going for the O's at the Yankees on Monday evening, a 6:35 first pitch. Jorge Lopez will take on Jordan Montgomery. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yeah, I might as well play that soundbite as often as I can here because I'm not sure how many more times I'll be able to play that as the season goes on. One more item before we call it a podcast on this Monday, and that is our Wizards, who will be in action on Monday night, actually begin a six-game road tripper at the Toronto Raptors at seven. Raptors are bad this season, in case you haven't been paying attention, just 19 and 30, one spot ahead of the Wiz in the Eastern Conference standings. Uh, The Wiz, seven games now behind the New York Knicks and Boston Celtics for the seventh and eighth spots in the East. Bradley Beal and Rui Hachimura are questionable for Wizards at the Raptors on Monday night. Daniel Gafford is going to remain out. Uh, the Wiz, which is one game over the weekend, but it was another loss, another instance of the Wiz being injury depleted, and another instance of the Wiz being non-competitive. Wizards fell to 17-31 and with a 109-87 loss to the Dallas Mavericks at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. Bradley Beal missing a fourth consecutive game due to that right hip contusion. Rui Hachimura not playing due to right shoulder tightness. Daniel Gafford missing a third consecutive game due to a sprained right ankle. And of course, the Wiz do remain without their best big man, or at least one of their best big men, depending on uh, where you put Gafford in that mix. But Thomas Bryant, right, he's been out since January 9th due to a partial left ACL tear. Now, the Wizards did get back some horses on Saturday night. Davies Bertans did return 
from a seven-game absence caused by a right calf strain. Actually started for the Wizards, played though for just 20 minutes, nine seconds, went three of eight on threes, finished with 11 points. The problem was that the rest of the Wizards went two of 17 on threes. The Wizards' three-point shooting on Saturday night was atrocious. Five of 25 for the game. And again, you take Bertans going three of eight out of the mix. Wiz, two of 17 from beyond the arc. Also, Ish Smith was back for the Wizards. To whatever extent, Ish Smith being back for the Wizards mattered. Uh, he had not played in about a month and a half due to a right quadriceps injury. Uh, one of six from the field was Ish Smith off the bench, in addition to him committing four fouls. Wizards lose again. And again, there wasn't a lot to this game. It's a 13th loss in 17 games. The Wizards' largest lead was a one-point lead in the first quarter. Wizards did not lead at all over the final three quarters. The Wizards in the fourth quarter trailed by 22 points. The Wizards in the second half got outscored by 17 at 57-40. 87 points was the Wizards' point total for the game. You know, this has been a real issue for the Wizards this season, and there are many. <laughs> there are many, many issues for this team, but the Wizards, even last season, actually did offense decently well. Like, the Wizards' last regular season did finish 16th in the NBA in offensive rating, which is points per 100 possessions for NBA.com. Wizards threw games on Saturday just 23rd out of the 30 NBA teams in offensive rating. That's been a big issue for the Wizards this year. They actually scored points at a decent clip last season, as bad as the Wizards were. They're not scoring like they did last season, this season. And that certainly stood out on Saturday night. Again, a season-low 87 points for the Wizards in that blowout loss to the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, Wiz defended okay, but when you only score 87, there's not much you can do. Russell Westbrook, 0-3 on threes, 11-21 on twos, 26 points, 14 rebounds, 5 assists versus four turnovers. Denny Avdia went 0-4 on threes, did go 4-7 on twos, nine points, and eight rebounds. Wizards, though, you know, they're just not getting a lot out of uh, enough people. You know, Alex Len has been starting a 12th consecutive start for him on Saturday night. No points on 0-2 shooting in just 13 minutes, 22 seconds of playing time. Did have five rebounds and two blocks, but, you know, you got very little, or not nearly enough anyway, out of Len. Garrison Matthews was back to starting on Saturday night due to the injury absences. Matthews had come off the bench each of the last four games off having started each of the previous 21 games. 0-4 on threes, no points in 18 minutes, 50 seconds of playing time for Matthews. He did have two bright spots off the bench. Robin Lopez, 8-9 shooting, 18 points, four rebounds. Hole Neto, just 1-4 of four on threes, but 6-11 of 11 on twos, 16 points, four rebounds. But this is the state of the Wizards here, you know? You're, you're forced to highlight Robin Lopez and Hole Neto as positives. No Beal, no Hachimura, no Gafford, no chance these days. And the Wizards continue to sink 14 games below 500 at 17 and 31. You're 48 games into this 72 game regular season. And we're really getting close to the point where it's tap out time on the year. Like, like, you know, and, and we may well be there right now, but we really are on the doorstep of, okay, Bradley Beal has a right hip contusion. What really truly is the point of him playing moving forward? You know, Rui Hachimura is dealing with a right shoulder issue. What really truly is the point of him playing moving forward? Daniel Gafford suffered that badly sprained right ankle. Why should he play anymore if you're not 100% sure about that ankle? You know, I mean, it just, you're playing out the string at this point. Even in this bad Eastern Conference, you're buried in the standings. Again, seven games behind the Knicks and Celtics for the seventh and eighth spots 
in the East. Like this is another season in which the East is ripe for the picking. Uh, certainly when it comes to like, you know, seeds, I don't know, four through eight, like the top three seeds. Yeah. Philadelphia 76ers, Brooklyn Nets, Milwaukee Bucks. Like th- those teams are a cut above everybody else. But after that, I mean, the fourth seed in the East, as we speak right now, there's a tie. The Atlanta Hawks and the Miami Heat at 26 and 24. Like all you need to do is be two games above 500 and you got the four spot in the East. Like that's the state of the Eastern Conference. And in that environment, the Wizards are buried in the standings at 17 and 31. The damn Washington Wizards. Exactly, Stephen A. I got this tweet over the weekend from Don Sullivan. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. Don wrote, to make the playoffs, the Wiz have to go 20 and 4 over the final 24 games. Yeah, probably not going to be happening. I mean, there, there isn't a precise record the Wizards have to go to make the postseason, but any sense of they're about to make some great run over the rest of the season and put forth this incredible effort to secure a postseason spot, yeah, probably not happening. Probably not happening. Anyway, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You may email me as well, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots to come this week when it comes to the Washington football team. Of course, we have the Nationals and hopefully the beginning of their season Tuesday against the Atlanta Braves. Huge game like we talked about for the Capitals at the New York Islanders on Tuesday night as well. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. We haven't talked since he signed. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.